we are bringing to a conclusion a series that we started back in January called As You Go. Uh, Next week, we will begin kind of our Christmas series during the month of December. Uh, But we've been looking at how do you follow the master disciple maker. And beginning in November, we've been talking about it's time to get intentional. You know, Paul, before, right before he died, wrote a letter to his son in the faith, Timothy. And, and of course, if you've ever done that, if you've ever sat down and wrote a final letter to someone, it can be incredibly emotional. You, you, you find out where the person's heart is. And so you listen to the words of Paul, and, and in 2 Timothy 2, 2, one of the most important verses really in all the Bible, Paul says to this young son in the faith, and the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Put very simple, make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. Keep the faith going. I don't know what you pray for on a regular basis, but but June and I very specifically pray for our family. And we pray for especially our grandchildren. We've got three grandchildren, and we pray for their future spouses. One of them's six, the other six, and one's four. And I know you're thinking, you're jumping the gun, aren't you? No. We pray that God is working in a life of, of a family somewhere who's raising little girls and instilling within them the Christian faith. As, as our sons are instilling with our kids the Christian faith. One of the greatest joys we had this week with our family is we'd get together and when we'd get ready to eat, I'd say, okay, who's going to lead prayer? And my little four-year-old Luke, I mean little four-year-old Garrett, I get them all mixed up, apologize for that. I, I, I said to June this week, I said, did I do that a lot? She said, yeah, a lot. But little Garrett said, I want to say prayer. He's four years old. And, and he, you know, thank God for the food and for, you know, everything that he's given to us. And, and boy, that just thrills me in June. I mean, we, we've got to pass our faith down. And Paul's concerned about that. And so he says to Timothy, you make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. And so the question we began this month asking is, how do we empower the person in the pew to go out and make disciples who make disciples? And what I want to say to us is that it's not complicated. It's literally unleashing the power of the individual Christian in the lives of other people. And one of the things I've tried to emphasize is that we kind of come off the tracks when it comes to making disciples and thinking, well, that's the job of the preacher. That's the job of the elders. That's the job of, you know, someone else instead of me. When in reality, Jesus says, It's all of my disciples' job. And so how do we do that? And what we did last week was begin looking at how Jesus did it in the life of one person. Now, we're not going to be Jesus. I get that. And we're going to see some of those differences today. But when you look at how Jesus, the master disciple maker, made disciples, you see really what we need to do. Jesus is down in Judea. And John begins by saying he had to go through Samaria. Now, if you know anything about ancient Israel, you had Judea in the south, Samaria in the middle, uh, Galilee in the north, 
And, and the Samaritans kind of blocked the people coming from the north down to Jerusalem. I mean, not physically, but, but Jews didn't like Samaritans, and Samaritans didn't like Jews, and so they tended to avoid one another. But Jesus said, I've got to go through Samaria. Why? Because he's got a mission he's on. There's one person, one person he's wanting to meet, and he's going to change her life in the lives of so many others through her. He went north, he's going, and, and by the way, this is a, a picture of the literal place where he stopped at, of course today, not back then, as you can imagine, but this is looking due west. And so if you went between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim there, you would actually go into the Mediterranean Sea. Jesus is traveling from left to right toward Galilee. He's going due north. And he stops at Jacob's well. And when he gets to Jacob's well, there's a woman who comes. It's the middle of the day. And so for a woman to come drawing water in the middle of the day tells you something. Something peculiar about this woman. We're going to see what it is here in just a moment. And so when they get there, and again, this is a review from last week. Jesus says, will you give me a drink? Which to us, we're just kind of like, okay, what's the big deal? But let me tell you, at that time period, first of all, a man didn't talk to a woman out in public unless he obviously knew her. Secondly, a Jew would never speak to a Samaritan, especially a Jewish man, to a Samaritan woman. And she brings that up. You know, you being a Jew, do you, do you even speak to me? Are you serious? How can you ask me for a, a drink of water? But Jesus is doing something very important. He's initiating an intentional conversation. At the very heart of disciple-making is the willingness on our behalf to intentionally meet people. Just, just to say, hey, I want to meet you. I want to get to know you. I mean, it's as simple. This last week, we're, we're together Thanksgiving Day. We've got all the family in, and I think there's maybe nine of us or ten of us, and we've got enough food to feed all of y'all. Okay, y'all, do y'all do that? I mean, I'm like, June, we don't need any more. Well, we might need it, you know, she cooked some more. And, and so we're sitting there with just tons and tons of food. And so I, I went and looked out the back door. We have neighbors on one side of us, uh, a young man and young woman, and they're from New Jersey. And I just wanted to see if they were there. And sure enough, their cars were there. And so I came back in, and I said, June, I said, can we invite them over for Thanksgiving? Do you mind? She said, absolutely not. Go and see if they're willing to come. And so I went over and I knocked on the front door and they came to the front door and I said, hey, listen, we're, we're together for Thanksgiving. And, and I noticed y'all still here. Obviously, you didn't go back to New Jersey. I mean, we've got too much food by a ton. Would y'all mind coming over? And they said, well, we got a late start to our Thanksgiving meal and then the young lady looked at me and she said, well, you do know he's a vegetarian, right? And I said, well, that might cause a few problems, but we'll work around it, you know. And, and so they said, sure. And they came over and they joined us for Thanksgiving. I don't know anything about their religious background, but I just wanted to invite them over. And afterwards she said to me, you know, my mother called this morning and was afraid about us eating and spending Thanksgiving by ourselves. And I said, you call your mother back and say you didn't have to. And then I said, would you like to take something with you? And they're like, can we? And we're like, yes, you know, take food with you. Please, please take food with you, you know. And, and it's as simple as that. 
a simple, intentional conversation. And we had the opportunity to sit there and visit with them and talk to them, and it was wonderful. Again, how can you ask me for a drink, the woman said. And then Jesus introduces something very important. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He introduces spirituality into the conversation. Now, at first you kind of look at it and you go, really? That, that spirituality? It was. Now, the woman at the well didn't know it. She said, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is dealt. Where can you get this living water? Everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And her response is, I want that water. I am tired of coming to the well every day. I mean, obviously, it's going right over her head. Okay? But Jesus got her talking. And he did this all the time. Jesus was the master of throwing in one line that caused you to go, Huh? You know? Excuse me? What? He often introduced these confusing conversations that invited the conversation to continue. John 3, 3 to Nicodemus. I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And of course, Nicodemus is sitting there looking at Jesus going, if I've got to go back into my mother's womb, there's a problem there. She's been dead quite a long time. And of course, it's meant to draw Nicodemus further in the conversation. John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, you've got all the people that come over to Capernaum. They come in the synagogue. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to everyone. Sound familiar? Like the woman at the well. Sir, always give us this bread. And then Jesus says this, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then look at what Jesus says. Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Can I ask you a question? If someone told you that, what would you think? I mean, here's what I would do. You know, I'm like, come on, June, it's time to leave. I mean, this guy's inviting us to eat his body and to drink his blood, which is interesting because we all just got through doing that symbolically, and it didn't faze us. It fazed these people. And, of course, some of them began to say, this guy's nuts. How can we eat his flesh? How can we drink his blood? And one of the things that we realize in some of the encounters with Jesus is not everyone with whom you introduce spiritual subjects will be interested in pursuing them. I mean, one of the things I try to do when I meet people is not to let them know I'm a preacher. Okay? Because just as soon as they find out you're a preacher, guess what? That wall goes up. I mean, it immediately goes up. And, and I'll, I'll never forget one guy in particular. I mean, I had met him at the gym. I was trying to build a relationship with him. He was one of the most difficult human beings I've ever worked with. I mean, he cursed all the time. I mean, whether he needed to or not, not that you ever need to, but you know what I mean. I mean, he was always using filthy language. People would be offended. People would come up. He was, he was mean-spirited. I, this has been going on for several, several months. And, and one day after the gym, he saw me at Kroger. And he says, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. 
He says, I mean, it's, it's, it's 8.30 going on 9 o'clock. You're not at work. What in the world do you do for a living? And I thought, okay, here we go. And I said, I'm a preacher. And then he said, the blankety blank you are. Sometimes you don't get anywhere with people. But you try to keep the conversation going. Go call your husband and come back. Jesus wanted to keep the conversation going. And she immediately responded, I have no husband. I I love the chosen because here at this point, she gets very anxious. She's about to leave. And then Jesus begins to carry on a deeper conversation about her husband's. See, she had been married five times. And the man she was married to or was with at that time, she wasn't married to. I don't know if you've ever stopped to ask what was going on in this woman's life. How could someone be married five times? I think there's some things about the first century that help us to understand this a little bit. First of all, in the first century, children were everything. Uh, one of the things about the Jewish faith and the Samaritans saw themselves as being faithful followers of, of the Torah. One of the things about whether you were Samaritan or Jewish is that the very first commandment that God gave in the book of Genesis is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so it is a commandment that you have children. I mean, that's the way they interpreted that. And, and so one of the first things you did was you would get married in order to have children. And, of course, children's what made your life prosperous. The more children, the more hands working in the field, you know, the, the more people to take care of you when you got old. You know, I, I just signed up recently for Social Security. You know, you're like, you got two sons. Yeah, I signed up for Social Security. <laughs> you know, I've only got two sons. But back then, they would have just children and children and children. Why? Because that's, took, that's who took care of you when you got old. My guess is this. My guess is that this woman was a very attractive lady. And she probably married quite young. But one of the things that her husband realized very quickly after getting married, year, two years, she hadn't gotten pregnant. No children. You have to have children. You have to have heirs. That's just the way it works in the, in the ancient Middle Eastern world. And so my guess is that he invoked Deuteronomy, sent her away, divorced her, only to have someone else in the community to say, you mean he just divorced that beautiful wife of his? Yeah, she never gave him any children. And my guess is that he thought, yeah, that was his problem, I guarantee you. And so the next guy married her. Still no children. And then another guy thought, well, I'll be the one. And still no children. Until number four came and number five came. And after number five got frustrated, she was sent away. And by now, she is probably in her early to mid-30s, which back then, when your average age span was about 46, you're getting old. And so finally, someone just said, you can come live with me. As long as you take care of me, I'll take care of you. Jesus knew all of this. 
Now, by the way, that's, that's the Bible according to Les Chapman. You'll not find any of that in Scripture. I'm just telling you, in my mind, that's what's going on in this woman's life. She had just unfortunately had just bad turn after bad term after bad term. And Jesus addresses that real pain which she was struggling with. And if there's anything I've learned in all the years of ministry is that oftentimes the people we make, we meet, the, the people we see on the outside are not the same people on the inside. They're people who are carrying incredible burdens, unbelievable pain, things that happened maybe in childhood or things that happened as they were teenagers, and, and I mean tragedies that occurred in their family and oftentimes, people we meet are carrying these incredible, unbelievable amounts of pain. And one of the things Jesus tried to do was to address that. Tried to figure out what it was. Because if there's a point I want to get across today, it's this point right here. Salvation is more than just being saved from our sins. I mean, it's not about getting saved or being saved or being baptized. As important as that is, if we stop right there, we, we commit a terrible tragedy. You turn over to 2 Corinthians 3, and Paul talks about what happens after you're baptized. And look at what he says. And we all, including himself, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. What's, what's Paul talking about? Paul's talking about the fact that salvation is where the story begins. Being baptized is where it begins. The reality is that it is ultimately about restoration. It's about going back and being the image that God created us to be. He created us to reflect Him. And we ruin it. But when we come to Jesus, Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, notice the language there, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What are they trying to do? They're trying to put us back together again. And I don't know about you, but this Humpty Dumpty has a lot of cracked shells to put back together again. Christians need to be committed to building a real, lasting relationship with those who don't know Jesus. It's not enough to get them in the water, friends. Can you imagine going to the hospital? I mean, your, your, your wife says to you, it's time. And boy, you grab all the stuff, you jump in the car, you, 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 you call the hospital. My wife's, you know, uh, we're, we're expecting and she's in labor and you rush in and and you go through that whole long process, and the baby is born, and, you know, a couple of days pass, and the doctor comes in and says, all right, I'm releasing you. You and the baby are free to go. And you and your wife says to the doctor, oh, we don't want the baby. Excuse me? Oh, we just wanted to experience the birthing process. We wanted to bring somebody in the world, but we don't want to raise them up. I mean, it gets expensive. It was expensive enough to have the baby. I mean, have y'all ever stopped and added up how much it costs to raise a kid? Have you ever done that? Uh, both of our boys went to Good Pasture, and then uh, we, we told them we would pay for three years of their college. And it's, especially my youngest one, who June says is so much like me, is why the problem is there. 
But he tended not to appreciate it at the time. And so I sat down one day and just added it up. How much have we paid between Good Pasture and Tennessee Tech and David Lipscomb? And, and the amount came to a quarter of a million dollars. They're paying it back $50 a month <laughs> for the next 800 years with interest. You know, I think a lot of us are that way spiritually. We think our job is to get them into the church, get them baptized, and then we just turn them loose. And Jesus says, you can't do that. I mean, look at the job. You've got to teach them everything to obey, everything I've taught you. Wait, wait, wait. Everything? Yes. But, Lord, that's going to be difficult. I mean, that's, that's long nights. That's difficult weekends. That's times, and yeah, it's like raising a physical child. A spiritual child is the same way. And God said, but it's your job to do it. And I think sometimes that's where we mess up. Jesus, in responding to the woman, said, listen, you're right. When you say you have no husband, you've had five, and the one you're living with now, what you said is quite true. But can I ask you a question? What did Jesus not do to this woman? I mean, you've had five husbands, and you're living with a man who is not your husband. That obviously, you know, is, is not what she ought to have been doing. But in her life, it was the only thing she found that she could do in order to just take care of herself. And what you find Jesus not doing is condemning her. He didn't say, you know, what's wrong with you? How come five men couldn't live with you? And why in the world are you now living with a man who's not your husband? Do you not realize how wrong that is? That's not what Jesus did at all. He didn't judge her. He didn't condemn her. You turn a few pages over and a woman who's actually caught in adultery I mean, her and a man are in, a, in an act of adultery and, and somehow they couldn't catch the guy, but they call, caught the woman, right? Well, that's another whole story, right? And they bring her to Jesus. And Jesus sees what's going on. And he says, whoever is without sin, go ahead, cast the first stone. Go ahead and kill her. If you haven't sinned, you go ahead and do it. And one by one, they dropped the rocks and one by one, they left and the woman is left standing there, and Jesus says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. And then Jesus says something remarkable. God in the flesh, knowing exactly what she had done, says, Then neither do I condemn you. And then he says, But you've got to get out of those relationships. They never end well. Stop sinning like that. Nothing but compassion. Nothing but love. I would love to tell you that we have a great reputation for being a non-judgmental fellowship, right? I mean, have you ever had someone when you said, yeah, I go to the church of Christ. Oh, y'all are the ones, and then here it comes. In my earlier years, I contributed to that. I was raised that way. I thought that was how you responded to people and now it just horrifies me to think how many people I may have turned away from Jesus because of not realizing that we're not here to judge. We're here to bring people to Jesus. The woman, when Jesus brings this up, is like, okay, I'm not ready to talk about this. And you know, oftentimes in people's lives, they're not ready. Brian, our 
uh, head of our counseling center, Brian knows full well that the first time somebody comes to see him, they're very likely not to tell him everything on that visit. In fact, sometimes it takes a long time. I mean, think about you. How long before you can trust somebody enough to reveal your deepest, darkest secrets? And so this woman is not ready, and so what does she do? She, she turns it to religion. You're a prophet, you know, kind of like people who say, oh, you're a preacher, I've got a Bible question for you. And so it says, where do we worship? We worship on this mountain. We wor- worship up here at Mount Gerizim. They'd had a temple up there for many, many years until the Jewish people destroyed it, okay? I mean, there was a temple up there, and about 150 years earlier, the Jews had swooped through and just completely destroyed it. But they still continue to believe. It's up on this mountain. You believe it's in Jerusalem. And of course, Jesus talks very briefly about worship. But more than that, she then responds after he kind of discusses it with, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus says, here I am. The person you're talking to is that Messiah. I mean, at some point in every conversation, we've got to ultimately begin to talk about Jesus. It's that simple. And listen, if we can't talk about Jesus, we don't need to wear the name Christian. I mean, I hate to be that blunt, but if you're too afraid to mention the name of Jesus to your friends, your acquaintances, your neighbors, people at work, then maybe it's time to reassess whether you're a true Christian. Because Christians are not ashamed of Jesus. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? I don't know if you... I mean, don't don't miss this. Here's the woman who's come to the well in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to talk to people. She don't want to talk to people in the village, people who know her, people who are akin to one of her ex-husbands. She don't want the embarrassment of all of her life behind her. And all at once, having met Jesus, she runs into town, leaves her water jar, and said, you've got to come and meet this guy. Could he be the Messiah? And Jesus has a marvelous way of expanding his kingdom exponentially, one person at a time. I mean, look at the result. Well, let me go back to it. Uh, here's the result, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. I, I, I love this episode in The Chosen. Because when, Je- when she's about to leave, she turns to Jesus and she says, I'm going to go and tell everybody about you. And as she runs off, Jesus smiles and says, I was counting on it. And you see the power that we unleash when we just simply bring one, people to, one person to Jesus, is the power of exponentially exploding the kingdom of God. And that's what God calls us to. And so this week, let me simply ask you this. Number one, a personal relationship is necessary to help address the real challenges people face. Who are you building a relationship with? You run into them every day. I promise you. And if you don't, simply pray this prayer. God, will you open a door and let me meet someone today I've never met before? And when you do, somebody will move into the apartment next to you. Someone will get the next right beside the desk right beside you at the office. Someone at, 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 the, at the Y will come up and get on a treadmill right beside you. I remember I was working out over at uh, Old Tennessee Christian there in Madison. 
And one day we were sitting there and we were talking about church and there was some old, and one particular old Hickory Church of Christ member there and he and I had developed a wonderful relationship. And we were sitting there talking about the church and this lady overheard me. And she said, are, are, are y'all members of the Church of Christ? And I said, yeah. And she said, I am too. And I said, awesome. I said, where do you go to church? And she said, well, I used to go to Brick Church Pike, Church of Christ. Any of y'all ever heard of that church here in Nashville? Brick Church Pike, Church of Christ. Brick Church Pike, Church of Christ is what became Northside, where I preached for 28 years. It was Brick Church, Church of Christ from 1958 to about 1961. Then it became Parkwood Church of Christ and then Northside Church of Christ. Well, as soon as she said that, I said, I preach for that church. She said, you do? I said, yeah. I said, you need to come back. She said, I think I will. And guess what? She did. And before long, her daughter was coming with her. And before long, I was baptizing her daughter into Christ. Why? Because one day at the gym, we simply said, yeah, Church of Christ, and someone heard it. You open yourself to people coming to the Lord and people will come to you in an effort to come to the Lord. It's that simple. Number two, be honest with yourself. Do you come across judgmental and condemning? We, we, we can't. It takes about that much of being judgmental and they're gone for good. We've got to be like Jesus. You know, the golden text of the Bible, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So that everyone who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you remember the next verse? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. I mean, we don't recognize the next verse. Jesus didn't come to condemn, he came to save. Now, will there be a judgment day at the end of time? Absolutely. And the words that Jesus spoke will be the words we're judged by. But not right now. Right now is a time of hope. It's a time of pointing people to Jesus. And then number three, don't be afraid to let people know that you follow the one called Jesus. Put a Bible on the corner of your desk at work. You know, wear a cross. I mean, put it around your neck. Talk about being at church. You know, I mean, even say, you ain't going to believe what the preacher said Sunday. Just use that one. I don't care. Just somehow let people know that you're a follower of Jesus and then watch what God does as a result. Ah, thank you for this journey as we've looked at the master disciple maker. And if you have a need, we're here for you. We have elders that will be in both the back and the front foyer. They have their name place that says elders on them. If you'd like to pray, uh, have one of them pray with you, they would be honored to do so. If you'd like to arrange to be baptized, they'll be here in the back, out front. I'll be down front. Let us know how we can help. You can do that right now. Let's go that we stand and sing.